This is special programming from North State Public Radio. I'm Sarah Bohannon. It's been 24 weeks since the campfire started. Tonight on After Paradise, we get an update from four government officials working in campfire recovery. We hear from Chico News and Review Managing Editor Meredith Cooper about a group looking to better manage future wildfire in Concow and about why some who perished from fire-related causes are not being counted. We also hear from students at three universities who have been envisioning the rebuild of the ridge and have blueprints and ideas to share. And we answer your question about alternative housing for campfire evacuees. You can ask anything you want about post-campfire recovery on our website, mynspr.org. For Thursday, April 25th, 2019, this is After Paradise. We start with updates from government officials. Earlier this morning, NSPR's Mark Albert spoke with Colette Curtis from the town of Paradise, Casey Hatcher of Butte County, Justin Jacobs of Cal OES, and Rebecca Kelly of FEMA to get the latest on campfire recovery efforts. Mark takes it from here. Uh, Colette, let's start with you. Uh, it's Colette Curtis from the town of Paradise. Um, welcome to the program. Uh, what's the latest? Sure. Thank you so much, Mark, for, for having me. Um, so we are continuing to issue permits and receive applications. We've issued eight building permits so far for homes that were um, destroyed in the campfire. We have about 40 permit applications on file that we're reviewing. So things are starting to pick up, and we know in the next few weeks we're going to get a lot more. So we're seeing a lot of excitement, a lot of people that are moving forward, um, and we're doing everything we can to support them in that process. I would also encourage everyone to visit um, our rebuild website, www.makeitparadise.org. That has information about rebuilding and our planning process for the future. And it also has a community survey that we encourage everyone to take to help us get an idea of what our residents want to see moving forward. Um, It's important that we hear from as many people as possible. We've already had a huge response. Um, We've received almost 1,500 responses to that survey, and we would love to get some more um, just to get a really good idea of what people are thinking. All right, great. Casey, uh, there's a lot going on in the county, I'm sure. Uh, Casey Hatcher, spokeswoman for Butte County, uh, what is the latest? Hi, Mark. Thanks for uh, having us here to talk with you today. One of the big areas the county is focused on is debris removal. Uh, We recognize that removing the fire debris is the first step um, to get that lot cleared so that people can ultimately start the rebuild process. And so far, there are 310 parcels that have been certified clean by the county. It's 171 that were cleaned in the alternative program and 139 that were cleaned by the government program. And we know that there are lots of Parcels that have been cleared of debris in the government program, and we anticipate a lot of those will be returned to the county soon for final sign-off, and those numbers will only um, increase. We encourage people to come to 202 near Aloma in Oroville or call 530-552-3155 to ask any questions that they have and get signed up into one of those programs. So the debris removal really is that first step, and we encourage people to make sure that gets done. So even though the deadline's passed, you can still apply and you might get in or you're likely to get in and be approved or you're going to have to file a, um appeal. At this point, we are still accepting people into both of those programs. Our goal is 
to not have to abate any of those parcels. That would be ideal um, both for the property owner and, and the local jurisdictions. So uh, we those deadlines have passed and we do have the opportunity to start that enforcement, but our approach right now is really outreach to try to get in contact with people, make sure they understand their obligation to sign up for debris removal and get them into one of the programs. Joining us also on the line is Justin Jacobs with Cal OES. Uh, I imagine there's uh, quite a bit happening at the state level. Yes, there is, Mark. And again, thank you again for inviting us uh, on this morning and allowing myself as well as my uh, communication colleagues to share uh, all this news and get the information out to survivors. Um, to date, uh, we've cleared more than uh, 400,000 tons of debris out of the uh, fire-burned area. And um, as was mentioned, there are several uh, hundred lots, both in the state program and alternative program, that have been certified clean and returned. But then there's been more than 1,300 um, sites with, uh, that have been cleared of debris and are just waiting for some soil samples and additional processes to happen uh, so we can return those additional sites. So they talk about the rebuilding and the permits. We're very excited to um, turn those back over and excited now that both the Town of Paradise and the county both have rebuild permits out and we're um, seeing progress and steps in that direction as well. All right, and joining us also is Rebecca Kelly of FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Uh, There's, of course, a ton going on with FEMA, and I understand, uh, well, you're also getting ready to bring in some manufactured housing units, or they're already um, here. Of course, Bidwell Canyon State Park is already open. It had um, 40 uh, pad sites available, and those 40 are all occupied. The next one that will open will be Rosewood Estate. We're looking at early May for occupancy there. As I said, we are still working through the construction and inspection phase. Those units are between one, two, and three-bedroom units, and they include furnishings, all of the... Uh, electric and water bills will be paid for by FEMA, and um, they will be in touch with a case manager every single month to recertify um, what their housing needs are uh, going forward. You know, Rebecca, these are people who are being relocated from motels, hotels, and other trailer parks that they've been assigned to since November? That's correct, Mark. That's correct. We are trying to move from the temporary sheltering assistance program into a longer-term housing mission. So that longer-term housing mission will allow people to retain, will gain some sort of normalcy with respect to structuring their lives, acquiring new jobs should they need that, um, establishing their children back in school, and establishing, again, some sort of a um, safe, secure environment that is... Um, you know, close to what we can get individuals to normal as we can. Uh, and we're saying Rosewood Estates is going to open for occupancy sometime around mid-May. Do you have any estimates for some of the other sites, including the big site in Gridley that uh, I believe is over 400 units? Yeah, that's correct. Gridley Industrial Park should be opening after that one, and they're all in a um, design, construction, and inspection phase. So I can't give you exact dates of when that will open, but um, that one is going to be a pretty large um, uh, commercial. There's still no estimate on the uh, uh, when it's opening. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. 
Rebecca Kelly, Afima, thank you so much. Uh, Justin Jacobs with Cal OES, Casey Hatcher with Butte County, and Colette Curtis of the Town of Paradise. Thank you so much for your help today and participating in this call. Thank you for having us. This is a new recurring segment on our program. If you have questions for the Town of Paradise, Butte County, Cal OES, or FEMA, you can submit them at mynspr.org. A lot of media coverage on the campfire has focused on the town of Paradise. As the most populated community on the ridge, that makes sense. But there were many others that were ravaged and are also still working to heal. Recently, a group of people surveyed CONCOW to learn from its wildfire management practices of the past and to look toward creating better practices for the future. I spoke with Meredith Cooper, managing editor for the Chico News & Review, about two of her recent stories. We start with her piece about this gathering. I was invited by Callie Jane DeAnda. Uh, she runs the Butte County Fire Save Council, and she had gathered all of these specialists and stakeholders from a bunch of different groups. There were people from Cal Fire. There was U.S. Forest Service, Butte County itself, representatives from the Concow Maidu tribe, and others. They were all gathered to really look at the landscape, specifically in Concow, because it was it was so burned and it burned also in 2008, so 10 years prior, and then 10 years later. Uh, so it was kind of, it's kind of a unique test case in that they were able to go back and see what techniques they used, techniques for clearing brush, uh, making trying to make the area more fire safe. And what they found really was that most of their techniques had not made a difference. So were there any solutions that they had come up with together as a group while you were up there, or what were they talking about as possible solutions? There are a number of things that they're looking at in what they call the wildland urban interface, which is what Concow, Yankee Hill, all those areas are. Um, is that they really need to be paying attention to what kinds of plants regrow. So they're looking at vegetation management mm-hmm. as far as, you know, will they uh, try to plant certain trees or um, other kinds of vegetation that will help manage the land better. Uh, it will be less prone to fire as well as uh, what they can do to reintroduce fire to the landscape so that they're really living with fire rather than trying to suppress it. it that was a consensus of what, helped cause the campfire was this just years and years, decades even, of just stopping fires versus living with them, which is what this region has done historically. The fire has to come through and clear out that brush, otherwise you're just building fuel. One of the other things that they talked about was whether people should really be living in some of these areas and what kinds of policies might might need to be changed as far as building materials as well as defensible space. One of the unique things about looking at how to how to avoid another campfire is is really trying to get all these parties to work together and do things the same. Because just out in Concow, we were looking at private residences. There was U.S. Forest Service land. There's land that's owned by different special districts. There's a water district that owns the lake. Uh, and then there's the park district that owns a park. So trying to get all those people onto the same page is, is one of the biggest obstacles that they that they identified. Right, because when you're talking about fire, really it's all connected. Exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't care about your property line. Now I want to move to your other piece, Indirect Victims. This piece talked about the fact that there are a number of people who made it out of the fire but ended up dying likely from causes related to the fire later on. Um, and they've pretty much gone under the radar. Can you tell me more about that story and what you learned from your reporting? 
Yeah, so I had been looking through obituaries and seeing GoFundMe campaigns posted on Facebook, and I started to notice um, a number of people who had passed um, whose family members attributed their deaths to the fire, even though it was after the fire. So the official numbers that the sheriff's office has been publishing weren't taking those people into account. They weren't considering them campfire victims, although the families were. Can you talk a little bit more about a few of them? Um, you know, what were some of those causes that were campfire related? There, there were a couple that really stood out to me, and that's why I included them in my story. Um, Eleanor Williams, she was actually a patient at Adventist Health Feather River Hospital on November 8th. Uh, she'd been admitted for a head injury, and while they were evacuating her, she she didn't make it through the evacuation. And but I, she was not counted in that count that the sheriff has out. Correct. Um, there were there were others who, like Oren Crumley, he was rescued from his paradise home that that burned, but he died a couple days later of a heart attack. So is anyone keeping track of these deaths? Nobody's keeping track of them. Did you hear from officials why not? Um, yeah, you know, I started by trying to find out what the policy was uh, across the nation as far as disaster deaths. And what I found was a CDC reference guidelines for um, how to list the, the cause of death on a death certificate, for instance, especially when it's following a disaster. Uh, they say it's important to do that because it can help us learn for future disasters, you know, what kinds of secondary causes of death um, should we be looking out for? Like called FEMA, they're not tracking it. They referred me to the state of California. So I spoke with California Office of Emergency Services. They're not tracking it. They, they referred me to the county entities. Um, I spoke with the sheriff coroner, Corey Honey, and I spoke with uh, the Department of Public Health. Neither one of those departments are tracking those numbers either. It's really difficult, and even the CDC guidelines admit that it is difficult to pin down specific causes of death when they're not directly related to a disaster. That was the most common answer I got was, it, it's difficult, we don't know how to do it. So from your reporting, if you found at least 14 that appear to be campfire-related, then we're looking at more like 100 people who died due to the campfire. I'd say probably at least 100, probably many more. There are, there are a lot of people that got scattered all over the state, all over the country. And if their causes of death aren't being tracked, um, we, we may never know the, the true number of, of victims. Since nobody's tracking these things, I'm trying to do that. We're trying to do that at the News & Review. So if you do have a story, I, I encourage you to reach out to me, to the News & Review, and, and we'll, we'll try to tell those stories. That was Meredith Cooper, managing editor at the Chico News and Review, talking about her recent reporting on tracking down the true number of victims of the campfire. The story is called Indirect Victims. You can read it and her story on CONCAL called Surveying the Destruction at newsreview.com. This is After Paradise. More just ahead.
You're listening to After Paradise. I'm Sarah Bohannon. We now move to answering one of your questions. You have asked about alternative housing options available for those who have been displaced by the fire, and you were especially wondering about tiny homes and shipping containers. We now turn to NSPR's Julia Maldonado for the answer. The campfire displaced thousands from their homes in November. Some are now living in other places across the United States, but many have stayed in the area and are now living in Chico, where housing is extremely limited. This lack of housing has led to RVs popping up as temporary dwellings all over the city. But what other temporary housing options are available for people? While I haven't heard of or seen shipping containers being used as shelter for evacuees, some people are turning toward tiny homes and the unconventional yurt. First, let's talk about tiny homes. These are temporary dwellings that are less than 400 square feet in size. They're classified as recreational vehicles and are usually attached to a trailer bed. To learn more about tiny homes, I talked with Todd Overton, the CEO of Bidwell Tiny Homes. He and Aaron Andrus started the company after the campfire. We were wanting to build a tiny house for ourselves to travel around in. And then when this uh, disaster happened, we started seeing that a lot of people are, are buying RVs to live in. And we just really decided that, hey, maybe we should launch a full business and build these for other people. Overton says he lived in an RV for a few years, but he felt like it didn't have the durability like a tiny home does. Overton and Andrus say they have received a lot of support for the business. They made their debut at the Chico Home and Garden Show. We've spoken with multiple people that are in RVs right now that would much rather have a tiny house. They're a lot more comfortable. It's more of a house feel than an RV. They're built way better. They'll last way longer. They hold their value. Other tiny home companies were there as well. I visited a few of them. The tiny homes include a loft, bathroom, and washing machine. The cost of some of these tiny homes is as low as about $37,000. Andrus predicts these types of dwellings will continue to spring up as they've had a lot of people inquire about purchasing a tiny home. I think that uh, Chico and the surrounding area will. Uh, it's going to have a lot more RVs, it's going to have a lot more trailers because of the, um, the governor's order for allowing uh, temporary housing in the, the tri-counties that were affected by wildfires. Yurts are another temporary housing option that is being used in the area. A yurt looks like a combination of a tent, hut, and house. They have a lattice wall, circular shape, and conical ceiling, all covered by a tarp. To learn more about yurts, I talked to Karina Dixon. She's a donations coordinator for Vietnam Veterans of America out of Chico. She showed me the yurt she has in her backyard. It's about 16 feet wide. I honestly believe in this idea as um, something that could be put up really easy. It's going to be stable. In this case, we have locks on the doors, so you could literally like lock yourself in and lock your space up and feel safe. Since the disaster, Dixon has hosted many campfire evacuees in her yurt. She talked about the durability and how yurts can last at least five years. If you're uh, putting it up and breaking it down, putting it up and breaking it down, then, you know, it might last longer because you're storing it. For the most basic layout, yurts can cost around $3,000. Adding other pieces like composting toilets and camp stoves will increase the price. For NSPR News, I'm Julia Maldonado. 
Tiny homes and yurts are two alternatives campfire evacuees are using for temporary housing now. But what does future permanent housing look like for residents looking to move back to the ridge? That's a question students from Montana State University, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and Chico State have been trying to answer for months. While the town's official envisioning process has been heavy on words, residents have said they want safety, vibrancy, and a place both welcoming to returnees and attractive enough to lure new residents. But this entirely separate process is heavier on blueprints. Last week, amongst the flurry of other rebuilding meetings, these students presented their designs of a new paradise to a small crowd. NSPR's Mark Albert was one of the few attendees and has the story. Townhouses, a medical research campus, a new mill turning Paradise's charred forests into cutting-edge building materials. Far-fetched? Perhaps, perhaps not. These were among more than a dozen visionary but entirely speculative designs presented in Paradise and Chico by architecture students from three different universities last week. Part academic exercise, part window into the possible, the ideas aim to offer visions of what paradise could someday look like. All of the parking would be against the street, and then inside of that there'd be walking trails, and then the houses themselves would be inside of that ring. That's Dalton Jensen. He's studying architecture at Montana State University and answered the challenge of designing multifamily housing for paradise. Designs like this may be part of a new reality. New construction is already expensive, and prices become more dear when skilled workers and materials are in short supply. In the same room the night before, more than a thousand Ridge residents gathered to talk about rebuilding the community at an official meeting held by the Town of Paradise and facilitated by the planning consultancy Urban Design Associates. More than a few attendees at that meeting expressed unease with affordable housing, something of a head-scratcher for a town previously peppered with mobile home communities and known as a haven for retirees on fixed incomes. Stacy White, an architecture professor at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, speculated that part of the resistance is marketing-related. I think that term, affordable housing, um, comes with some baggage, and I think people are reacting to the nomenclature and not necessarily the idea that they could afford to build a house. In Jensen's schematic, homes are grouped on part of the parcel, leaving space for special touches elsewhere, honoring local history and acknowledging the climate. A fruit orchard figures large in the site plan, The proposed site is bounded by streets like Pearson, Bushman, Foster, Black Olive, and Scottwood, and was hard hit by fire. With some shared walls, natural light, insulation, and rooms that aren't extravagantly sized, Jensen believes the units could be delivered at reasonable cost. At this point, the project is purely speculative. The town or a developer would have to buy out owners of dozens of lots, and there's currently no financial backers or a developer behind it. Like all of the student proposals, it's an exercise in creativity. But there's nothing stopping it from being reconceived elsewhere, scaled down, or even scaled up. Myra O'Neill Conrad is a professor at the School of Architecture at Montana State University. I think the community is still getting used to the idea of of paradise being different from the way it was before, and I think there's probably that's a long-term adjustment. But the housing that we're proposing is, is probably quite different from what Paradise has mostly seen. 
Down a hallway from Jensen, Ella McQuillan and Amanda Radner were showcasing their design, a downtown medical clinic and research facility that could generate jobs and provide valuable services to locals. With crisp, modern lines and expansive glass, the look is postmodern. The real innovation, though, is in the materials. The two propose using something called cross-laminated timber, or CLT, a building material McQuillan says is more common to Canada and Europe and can be derived from burnt trees. The two propose building a mill in Paradise to manufacture CLT from fire-damaged trees. It has nearly the same structural capabilities of steel. It's less expensive, it's better for the environment, um, and you don't have to fireproof it. At another station, Ariel Roseanne Alazar was pitching a state-of-the-art water treatment facility that could purify 150,000 gallons a day and let it return to underground aquifers. A working facility with an educational component, she envisioned field trips and workshops. Meanwhile, Marissa Mulcair's co-working facility drew interest from local civic and business representatives. The concept provides the amenities of a medium-sized office building to small businesses, kind of how stylists rent space in a hair salon. Being able to have the resources of a, of a big business and maybe bump elbows with people, you know, create ideas, collaborate, or, you know, get your work done quietly, have your clients come to this beautifully designed space and really believe that your business is legit. Such facilities have gained a foothold in big cities and with many office buildings damaged or destroyed, Mulcare is confident the proposal would fill a need. A lot of businesses and companies are structured like for work from home, but those people still need those human interactions, those resources, those things, and a lot of people in paradise, if they were working from home or their places of business perished, I want to make sure that there is a place for them and plus new businesses that may be popping up. Contrasting with most of the other proposals, Mulcares would extensively remodel and reuse an existing building, a squat, single-story cinder block structure at 633 Pearson Road. Other housing solutions included those for more comfortable disaster emergency housing, Brittany Watson is an interior architecture student at Chico State. The unusual pentagram shape of her design makes the small space seem larger and can accommodate wheelchair users more easily. She said her aim was an alternative to the post-disaster fifth-wheel travel trailer that is more comfortable, more durable, reusable, and expandable. I wanted to tackle that issue because a lot of the post-disaster relief housing is kind of like just these pop-up housing because that's all that can be done to make sure that it's insulated properly. And so I wanted to find a way to break that barrier. Both students and faculty have been presenting their work, but the sessions haven't been well attended by residents as the Paradise and UDA meetings have happened at the same time. Nevertheless, students and faculty expect some critiques, especially for proposals vastly different than pre-fire conditions. Again, Professor Myra O'Neill Conrad of Montana State University. There's a very wide range of readiness to hear that. You know, some people are welcoming it, saying we, we need to do things differently than we have before, and, and others are saying, we, you know, we... We liked it as it was, <laughs> and both are completely understandable. Final presentations of the refined designs are scheduled for June 2nd and 3rd. Mark Albert, North State Public Radio News. You can learn more about the project at mynspr.org. 
And that's our program for Thursday, April 25th, 2019. After Paradise is produced by Mark Albert, Phil Wilkie, and Tess Figland. Adam Raguzia composed our theme music. Our engineer is Matt Fiddler. And don't forget, we want to hear your questions. You can ask anything you'd like to know about post-campfire recovery at mynspr.org. We're also still collecting interviews with fire survivors for the Campfire Oral History Project we're working on with Chico State. These interviews will be preserved at the university's Merriam Library. The hope is that by documenting these stories, we'll be better able to understand what happened the morning of November 8th, leading us to be better prepared for these types of disasters in the future. If you were evacuated from the fire and you would like to participate, again, the place to go is mynspr.org. Thanks for being with us. I'm Sarah Bohannon, and this is After Paradise from North State Public Radio.